Welcome, everyone, to It's a Rap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features extraordinary people who do special things to enrich our lives and people who have overcome major challenges and adversities in their lives to come out on top. Our guest today is a very special woman, Gail Hamilton, who is a singer, musician, author, and public speaker. She shares her message of bravery, empowerment, gratitude, and positivity to audiences nationwide. Born 10 weeks premature and weighing a mere two and a half pounds, Gail and her twin brother lived in separate incubators for six weeks with continual 100% pure oxygen. Though her twin was not affected, this high oxygen level damaged Gail's eyes and left her with partial vision. It was during elementary school that her eyes developed cataracts, decreasing her sight to total blindness. Becoming totally blind is when Gail's imaginary and spiritual inner vision took flight. During this time of transformation, classical music became the center of her world. It was also during this time she experienced enormous other personal challenges in her life. Her parents drank, she was verbally discounted, teased and physically beaten by her brothers, including one who sexually abused her. In high school, Gail discovered her passion for singing and continued with piano. She graduated college with a degree in voice, then obtained her master's of music degree in vocal performance and master of arts degree in transpersonal psychology. After college, Gail moved to Colorado. The next 25 years would prove to be tornadic in her life personally. She received valuable psychotherapy, which helped her begin her most meaningful life transformation believing that her desire to fly must be bigger than her fear of falling. Gail has remained strong and unstoppable. She has contributed to the building of her own Habitat for Humanity House. She's written and published a memoir uh, titled Soaring into Greatness, a Blind Woman's Vision to Live Her Dreams and Fly. She became 2013 Ms. Colorado Senior America and fourth runner-up in the National Ms. Senior America pageant. Gail is co-author of Speaking Your Truth, A Woman's Anthology, Volume 3, and Modern Day Miracles by Louise Hay. Gail's professional musical experience includes having sung on a national level a repertoire of both concert and operatic music. Sung, she sung the leading role as Mimi in La Boheme and Violetta in La Traviata. Welcome, Gail. What a pleasure it is to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, it should be yeah. great. I have a, a whole list of questions I want to I want to dive into and Alrighty then get our audience familiar with you. So let me start out. What was the aha moment in that elementary school year when you realized you were blind? The aha moment was. When I was in fifth grade, I couldn't figure out, and this sounds really weird, if I could see or if I couldn't, because as my external vision decreased, as you read in the introduction, my internal vision increased. And it was like, do I see, do I not see? I don't know, is that real or not? And I started running into walls and tripping over things and, uh, I still, and I couldn't figure out why I was doing that because in my head, I could see. And, and the interesting thing is that vision, that visual center in our brain is located right at the back of the base of the skull. And 
that's the same for inner vision as external vision. So the way I finally could figure it out in my 11 year old mind was I took a piece of paper from um, a desk and I wrote on it my name. And at the end of L and Gail, I drew a line from that bottom part that extends outwardly. And I took, and I drew a line from that point all the way down to the bottom of the page. And I said to myself, if I could see, I would know that I'm, that I, that, that is ugly. And if I can't see, I'll know I'm blind. And, and that's what I did. And I couldn't see it. Then I got the, the realization that that was my reality. Uh, when you had the cataracts, did they tell you that that was something that was going to happen eventually? No, I had no idea I was getting cataracts. I had no idea I had cataracts. It wasn't until three years after my experiment that being a teenager, I had a little blow up with my parents and saying, you don't care. You don't care about me. And then I, (laughs) one of those good things. And then I said, and you don't even care that I don't see anymore. And, and they went, Oh, I guess we ought to take her to the eye doctor. And uh, so it was three years too late. And so they couldn't do anything about it at that point in time. Wow. Yeah. How did your family, your friends, your teachers uh, and society uh, react to your disability? back then? Hmm. Family was total in, in denial. They, my mother would say later, she goes, why do you tell people you could see? You know you can't, or you know you didn't. It's like, really? I, I, I remember seeing the pictures in my bedroom of a little boy and a little girl kneeling with their profiles facing each other with blonde hair and blue eyes. I remember they had little shoes and I used to draw with a black crayon, which I'm sure made my mother happy, from one, one, oh no, it wasn't that kids, but it was, uh, I had pink wallpaper and it had little white dogs on it with the little blue shoes. And I would take the, the crayon and draw from one dog's shoe to another dog's shoe. <laughs> <laughs> Why I did that, I have no idea, but I'm little and I do those things. So I know I saw, but my parents totally would deny that. Um, friends, you know, I went to a school for the blind for the most part, and we all kind of hung out together. It was interesting about that dynamic. The, the more sight one had, the more accepted one was in the hierarchy of students, even back in elementary school. So if you had a little partial sight, you were valued. But if you had zero, mm, not so much. So, wow. that, so they, yeah, they had, they had a social strata even there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And you wouldn't think so, but yeah, no. they did. Yeah. No, you would think you would think no, but uh, I yeah. guess it's everywhere. I guess so. Yeah. You know, and, and to the and of course now out in the world, it's kind of the same way, you know, the more, and it's still true. The more people have sight, the more respected they are, even in places, organizations for the blind, it's kind of that way. And wow. it's kind of sad, but there you have it. Yeah. It's yeah. reality. Yeah. Who, Gail, who is your biggest supporter in those early, early years of your disability? My biggest support would be my grandma. My grandma, she had a, 
um, sixth grade education. God, she made the best cinnamon rolls. <laughs> <laughs> strawberry pie, just for me. She knew I loved strawberry pie and cinnamon rolls. Uh, and, uh, but she treated me like a normal individual, not, not like a blind person, but a person just happened to be blind. And she touched me and she, and she had bigger conversations like you and I are having. There's a concept. And she, she knew, she hugged me and touched me and we, Oh, she made the little sandwiches, um, crackers with with uh, assaulting crackers. Uh-huh. She put bologna on them and ketchup and oh, see, it sounds gross. Um, <laughs> potato chips, pickles, tomato, anything she could get on that cracker, they'd be like three inches high by the time she finished. You know, it's her. it's really interesting. You ask people who their biggest supporters were in those years, and, and grandmother and grandfather come up all the time. Well, is that interesting? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. She just saw me as normal. Yeah. And she loved me unconditionally. It didn't matter to her that I was blind. You know, I was just Gail, her granddaughter, and we had best times together. Yeah. What what were your middle middle school and also your high school years like? and, And how did the family shortcomings affect you? Middle school was sort of the same as grade school because I went to the same school for the blind in Indiana for from first to eighth grade. High school was hard, really, really hard. Whereas the middle school was three years at that time behind in their education. The parochial high school I went to was three years ahead in the education. So I was flunking out all over the place, just Oh, math and history and science, F's all over the place. The only place I excelled was in music, but everything else was really challenging. And I would, back in the day, I would take a, here's dating me, a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and (laughs) I I would record my lectures in class, and then I'd bring them home, and in order to use that tape for the next day, of course, my parents could buy me a plethora of them. I don't know why they didn't. Just saying. Um, yeah, <laughs> but they, they, they dropped yeah. the ball on that. Apparently. Yeah, there you go. And they, um, so I would spend every night transcribing those tapes from the recorder in, onto a braille writer. And I didn't know how to take notes or make it short and sweet or outlines. Or I, 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 so I would copy practically every word from those tapes. And it'd take me like three hours per class. And, wow. oh, Adding to my behindness, my parents' shortcomings. Yeah, you know, mom drank and, you know, that that makes denial right there. Denial blind. She did not want to see me as blind. Um, when I was in high school, they, the my freshman year, they I went to a Catholic school. So the nuns and the students would kind of grab my arm and guide me from one class to another. And at the end of that one year of doing that, the nun said to my parents, we can't do this anymore. It's too hard. And so they made me go learn Caden travel. And my parents would not, I mean, uh, let me use the cane when I was in their presence. I mean, how about denial of being blind? And so my independence was stifled a lot. I never could go on my own and, and cross streets or go to the bus or do anything. I had no social life I, I was pretty much a prisoner in my own house and it was it was hard and of course you had the rule back then of don't talk don't touch don't tell so 
everything was a secret. Everything was hushed. Everything was in my head. And I was so depressed and I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know how to get out and psychologically or physically. And it was hard to this day. When I cross the street, I think about it. Like, do you want my Yes, I do. Okay. (laughs) But you know, it's not that it's second nature to me. Like if my parents would have supported me. Yeah. Yeah, you, you were you were definitely trapped during those uh, those turbulent years from elementary through high school. Did you have to suffer alone in silence, or was there any intervention uh, to help you deal or resolve uh, the abuse that was going on? Yeah, no abuse. I didn't know. I didn't know. I one time went to because I was just so quiet and so introverted and so unhappy and. Well, I'd say there's two interventions that tried to take place when I went to high school. One was uh, in history class, and I guess she had had enough of me by that time, my attitude. And she sent me down to a counselor's office. I didn't know to value counseling. And I was afraid, and I found out later, rightly so, because she would have done that, was that she would tell all to my parents. So I didn't tell. And, and I don't know if I knew even the extent of the all, because, you know, we stuff it down. And so I, I just kept everything buried. The other, I had another um, teacher, I guess I was in my high sophomore year. And I, again, I was depressed and I wouldn't sing. And I always sang and I didn't sing. And obviously something was going on at home, but, and I wouldn't talk about it. And I can remember her dragging my chair across the dining room and going, what is your problem? young lady?" <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't tell. So she got another student and her, and she told me to wear uh, culottes to school the next day, which I thought, oh my God, that's, that's shameful. Um, Cause we were wearing uniforms and I always had to dress up and then had to have makeup and my hair curled and dresses, ugh, all that. So I brought culottes to school and she and this other student ran with me for 45 minutes on the grounds of the school just to get it out of my body. And I always remember that. I mean, it wasn't, you know, no, I didn't tell anybody anything, but it certainly helped, you know, that. It ex- expunged it. Yeah. yeah, a little bit for a moment. And I knew she cared. And she, on the last day of school, she brought me a little set of bells, which I still have hanging outside um, on, on my porch, that just to let her know that, I, that she cared. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably that. She probably knew something was going on. Probably. Probably yeah. grandma did too, you know, but they, yeah. no, they couldn't say anything because my parents were such that they would deny everything. You know, yeah. what? I can remember later in life, I told her that my brother was abusing me. And she goes, I don't know why you're telling me that. You know, I wouldn't have done anything then and I wouldn't do anything now. Wow. Yeah, thanks, yeah. mom. Yeah, you're just a piece of work. <laughs> what, what prompted you in high school uh, to discover your passion for singing and playing piano? Piano started when I was in fifth grade. And I remember, and my parents had taken me to an Arthur Rubenstein concert once. And, and, but one night I was hearing from an intercom from my brother's room, uh, a piano concerto. And I said, oh my gosh, that's the most beautiful thing ever. And that probably started the piano lessons and my piano side of me singing I honestly was trying to get out of those piano lessons, um, which ended up being probably the best thing for me, but I ended, I, tr- I was trying to get out of them. So I um, 
tried guitar and that worked not real well, but I know a couple things on the guitar. And then I went, oh, how about voice? And I've always sung. I've always sung in grade school, even at eight years old, we'd sing in choir. My twin brother would nudge me in his elbow and going, Shh, quiet, you're too loud. So obviously I had a big mouth even back then. And I um, went to, they said, you can take voice or you can take guitar, you can take whatever you want, as long as you keep up the piano. So I walked into my first voice lesson and hit a high C and she goes, what are you doing being an alto? And I went, I don't know, I like to harmonize. And I, I knew that was my passion as soon as I had my first lesson. Nice. Yeah. Would, would you share uh, with our audience uh, some of the accolades you've accomplished in the field of music? Well, let's see some of my accolades. When I was getting my master's in music, I think that's where most of my accolades came from. I, you know, the, as you mentioned, introduction, singing the roles of Mimi and Violetta and, and La Boheme Trotti at Fiatta. We, that, I mean, that was definitely highlights of my life too. And um, I loved that. I loved with the orchestra and dressing all up. And it, that was really fun. I, but with under her, that teacher's tutelage, I, I did five recitals. I sang with orchestras and trios and quartets. And I did recitals and I did oratorials and you name it, I did it. And it was just like, and I did it all the time. I mean, it was just part of school life back then. And, and that was, it was really fun. And I really wanted to be a, a um, world-renowned concert singer. And I think, I guess, sort of a highlight, even though it didn't end up really well, was entering the, a national competition of music, national competition of music, I don't know what it was called, something. And I was one of seven people in the country to get to that level of the competition. I won the state and the regional and I was there. And so that was, that was a pretty good highlight. Just yeah. That's like a real good highlight. Yeah. yeah you're, you're a winner. In my I'm book, a winner. I that. try. Well, thank yeah, you. With that. I mean, okay. you know, that's, that's pretty up there. It, it was pretty uh, up yeah, there. I wouldn't make that could have launched my concert career, but it didn't because that judge saw me as blind. So what can I say? Yeah. Yeah. yeah apparently some people, some people's children. Yeah, they just yeah. don't know what they're doing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. What What are some of the biggest mistakes uh, people make about people with disabilities in general that you've noticed? That they ho hold us to low expectations. They don't see us as competent and capable, um, valuable. And, and I would think even if with blind, you know, our society is just so wrapped up in the visual that they can't imagine how a blind person would would function in the world without sight. You know, and they don't talk about it nowadays. You know, it's like all the other um, things that are going on right now with you know, the Asians and the Black Lives Matter and all that. You know, I'm waiting for them to come up with disabilities lives matter because there's yeah. another one, you know, and mental health, there's a whole nother one. You know, it's, it, we didn't boil down to it all of us, all we want at the end of the day is to be respected and to be treated as you would treat anybody else. Yes. You know, and right. that's all we want. And to hold well, us up right. to the, our highest good. And yeah. But wouldn't you want to do that to anybody you meet on the street? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and you're right. Uh, 
these the disabilities they they just don't get the the play in the media at all no not to the extent everybody else seems to get it right yeah yeah, yeah. were you close to your twin brother growing up and even today not really uh, and people always say, oh, you got that twin bond. You know, we were in the womb yeah. for six and a half months together. You should be bonded. Maybe it's those last two and a half months that make a difference. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. We miss that um, being premature. But yeah. um, no, we don't really. I mean, he likes rock. I like opera. You know, he's definitely into sports. Uh, I'm not. You know, I mean, I'm active, but not in the same way he is. Uh, we do like dogs, so I guess that's good. Yeah, um, one thing. <laughs> but yeah, one thing, but not really. He uh, This year, he actually did give me a, I can't say your name too loud, Alexa, with, um, we had a, has, it's a, the new one, it has a, a camera on it, so it can read oh. labels of your cans and stuff. So that was thoughtful. But yeah. other than that, we don't really connect much. In fact, I go on my birthday, Oh, you know, I ought to call him because, oh, yeah, it's his birthday, too. <laughs> <laughs> did, did your twin brother, did he try to pr protect you back in those days at all? Mm, you know, because of the I don't twin think bond? So. Yeah, no, I don't think so. We were just brother and sister. That was it. Yeah, he he hit and, and really abused just as well as all the other ones. So you write about the dire circumstances of living with abuse most of your young life and enduring physical, verbal, and sexual abuse from your immediate family. Uh, this is a subject most people will avoid talking about when talking about disabilities and why advocacy is crucial. It is usually always the elephant in the room where it is extremely uncomfortable to talk about the issue. Unfortunately, in many cases, the victim knows his or her attacker. Uh, the majority of abusers are family members, relatives, caregivers, neighbors, classmates, educators, or staff members assigned to support the person with disabilities. Most of the time, the victim suffers in silence, which perpetuates the vicious cycle of victimization. What made you want to write and gave you the courage to write about your experiences, let alone speak about them? Because... It was my truth. And as and I wanted people to know that they weren't alone too. And I I I had to tell to speak that truth, maybe to give myself validity. Um, but even though I knew I, I my truths were real and, and my experiences were valid, I I just I had to get it out there for whatever I just wanted to touch people's lives and let them know that they're not alone and they can make it over that hard. And it's it's, and it's way too, like you just read, it's way too common. I think I've heard once 90, 95% of people with disabilities are abused. That's just unacceptable. Yeah. And, and our society needs to know that this is going on. And we need to put a stop to that too. Yes, absolutely. You know, if I knew, you know, I don't know if how I could have done back then you know, I didn't really discover until I was older, though, what really was going on. I knew what happened with my brother. I mean, I knew that consciously. I didn't know what was going on with my father because I was too little. And so that didn't get, 
covered until later in life. But if I would have known I could trust somebody and if I would have known there was confidentiality, if I would have known I wouldn't have gotten in trouble, you know, of course, hindsight's always better than yeah. foresight. Man, I would have loved to have told. I, I would have had, I think, a life, because I've been depressed up until about 15 years ago. So how much more joy and maybe how much more help I could have given others if I'd known earlier. And it's okay, but my purpose is, I don't know, to provide some kind of hope. Right. I, I'm kind of in your boat a little bit. I, I'm a male breast cancer survivor, and I there's a lot of stigma attached to that with men. Mm-hmm. You know, we're only 1% of the male of, of the breast cancer cases. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of men out there with a lot of stigma, depression about it and all that. And we we get out and advocate for them because they are for the most part, voiceless. So we're getting that right. out. And, and it does, uh, it's great to help people like that. And, and yeah. that's what you're doing. You're helping yeah. people people in that situation. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who is mm-hmm. currently uh, in a situation that was similar to yours? You know, if they're old enough, find that one person you can trust, I would guess and confide in that person and, and reach out no matter what it is. You know, I, I've been suicidal in my life and uh, like four or five times. And the most important thing of all of it is that there's always hope. There's always a way through it, around it, over it, under it, whatever the challenge is. And find that one person that can believe in you until you can believe in yourself and, and just connect with that person because there is a way. And you deserve to have a good life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gail, what was the turning point uh, between being a victim of your life circumstances and realizing you are the creator of your own destiny? What was the turning point? Turning point. I did a lot of psychotherapy. I mean, years um, when I was suicidal and I was in a uh, not of codependent relationship and I gave up myself, I gave up my music, I gave up my psyche, I gave up everything. And, and I found the same kind of abuse, you know, that my dad had done. And finally, and I did a therapy, 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 therapy. And one day towards the end, my therapist said, you know, you ought to read this great book uh, called, and I would say, you can read that book and my book, everybody, but it's called, excuse me, your life is waiting. But then Grabhorn, and I read that. And not only did I read it because, you know, anybody could read a book, but I was at the place that it's like, oh, it's what's between my two ears that matters. It's my thoughts that create my greatness. It's not all those external circumstances. It's, it's you know, do I think I'm worthy? Am I lovable? Am I loved? Am I loving? Am I okay? Am I, what do I think about me? And so, and, and to live a life of gratitude and love and, and all that. So I, she has little suggestions throughout the book of what to do to turn your life around, which is one, live a life of gratitude. And every time that something negative pops into your head to switch it to anything positive, doesn't matter what it is, just make sure it's positive. And I did that for 30 days and my life started turning. That's, and from then that's when I built the Habitat House, became as American, wrote the book. And then last year, 
not in that introduction. I went to Australia before the pandemic. So, you know, it was, it's awesome. Anything can happen. I'm glad you turned it around. Absolutely. What what are the, what are the traits in your opinion uh, people must have in order to uh, live a successful life? I think you have to believe or be in alignment with your source or have faith or whatever you want to call that. I think, so that's one A is be in alignment. Uh, another A is be authentic with yourself and with others. Speak the truth no matter what. And then have a positive attitude and then take action. So I call it my, my four little A's. Uh, alignment, authenticity, attitude, and action. That's good advice. Very good advice. Growing up, you were awfully familiar uh, with the way many tried keeping you institutionalized, including your parents with an out of sight, out of mind mentality. How can someone that is what we call differently abled use their voice and learn how to use advocacy to truly live the life they want? Any tips or guidelines? Well, for me, it took all those years of therapy and lots of discriminations before I finally found my speaking voice. Singing voice wasn't hard. The speaking voice was hard. Because when you're abused, you know, you don't want to get in trouble and you don't want to get hurt worse. So it's really hard to find that voice. So in order to find it, I think you have to start little, maybe some little thing that, um, or just jump out and start big, but <laughs> probably it'd be easier to start Little, you know, it's like crossing the street. You know, you don't want to cross a six-lane highway the first day you learn how to use a cane. Probably not the best thing to be doing. But so you'd probably maybe want to walk around the block first. So probably in finding your voice, maybe, you know, the hardest thing I think I learned, and maybe the simplest step is saying, I was always saying yes to everybody else, and which meant no to me. And I think once I learned to say yes to me and no to them, then that's when my life sort of started turning around because that's when I learned to set boundaries and and to stick up for me. So maybe learning how to say no to others is a very good first step in finding your voice. Do you think saying yes to everybody was kind of uh, diffusing the situation or whatever? Yeah, I became the doormat to anybody and everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So what inspired you to enter a pageant? What was it like and <laughs> would you do it again? Hmm, I don't know if I'd do it again. Maybe if it were for the same reason I did, which was I did it. Um, I had a friend who entered me into it and she says, I'm entering you into this. And I went, okay. And that was five <laughs> years before I did. And then five years came along. She sent me the application and I deleted it from my inbox. And she called me two minutes after that. Did you get the application? I go, yeah, I deleted it because <laughs> 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 I'm not doing that. And besides, I don't have the, the uh, entrance fee. And she says, I'll be back. And she called me back. So I was okay. That's wavered. You're in it. And I went, <laughs> oh, okay. So she really wanted you in there. She did because well, because she knew she believed in me what I didn't know about me yeah. as far as that goes. But my reason for doing it was because I wanted to inspire people, no matter if it's writing or singing or or being in a pageant or playing auto harp or climbing the 
Sydney Harbor Bridge or whatever it is I'm doing at the moment or crossing the street, mm. if that gives somebody inspiration or hope that they can do that it in their lives that they're fearing, then I'm all about that to help people overcome that. And so I did it with that in mind to say, look, whatever your dream is, you can have it. You just have to believe. And so it was hard. It, it wasn't way really hard. It was time consuming because I never seen a pageant. I didn't know how to smile with your teeth. I didn't know how to do the queen's wave. I didn't know how to, um, and I did it with my fourth CNI dog. And so we had to, he didn't guide because he can't go to a little X on the, the um, stage, but uh -huh. I wanted him there because that's a part of me. Sure. And so we had to, I'd walk in gown and I had my friend guide me and then he was healing and I had to say my philosophy of life, which I could give you. And then, but we practiced hours so that I would look quote normal. So they wouldn't see blindness first and me second. We wanted them to see me first and oh yeah, she has a dog and that's just part of her package. So we worked really, really, really hard longer than anybody else did. Cause I, I didn't know, I wanted to be so, I wanted to be equal to everybody else sure and i know i knew i had to practice more than everybody else in order to be equal to because people see when they see me what do they see first blind and they immediately put whatever projections they have on that onto me and which isn't fair but they that's what they do and so i i knew my voice would win them over um i knew my philosophy was good and probably my gown didn't hurt either you know it's fine um, I, I thought I did well and all that, but I had to be better than so I could be, as I said, equal to. So and it I, was fun. I enjoyed it. I bet that scene, I dog was a great support for you. He was great. He was yeah. a poor, poor little Vinny. That was after I only had him like six months and all oh, the women put little jewel rhinestones all over him and made him flashy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They what had, was his name? Vinny. 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 Sir Vinny the Great. Yeah. That's a great name. Yeah, Vinny. After accomplishing all of your achievements, what was the reaction from your family? Well, the book was totally, don't talk about that. I mean, how dare I disgrace their name and uh, by writing that? And you know what I said was not true. Why did you go tell everybody else that? Um, my mother was dead by then. And I never told my father about the book because he was, oh gosh, he was almost 90. And so I, I said to myself, is that going to help or hurt the relationship? Yeah. And, and not that we had a great relationship, but what little there was, I was kind of salvaging that. Didn't totally work there to the end of life. But at that time, that's what I wanted to do. My brothers never read the book. My sister, that was her comment after she read it. And she told everybody else not to read it. Um, everybody else was fine with it, but yeah, not my family. What was, oh, the other accolades, music they were fine with, um, the house they were fine with, the, the operas, the, uh, the pageant. Yeah, my sister even came out with me to the pageant in New Jersey. So that was great. Yeah, and, that's good. Yeah, so everything else, you know, as long as we don't tell those secrets, you know. Yeah, the book <laughs> so, that was not a good uh, a, a good move, according to them. I'm sure. Right, but, right. But right. too bad, right? Yep, absolutely, because it's my truth. And as I was writing 
someone the other day uh, that I did a podcast with, and I said, you know, one thing that people can never deny you, and our, our truth is our truth. It may not be right or wrong, but it's our truth. Yeah. No. Let me ask you, um, did you, did you forgive your abusers? Was yeah. there a point where you, you, you just said, I, I'm going to forgive them? Yeah, because I didn't want to, I mean, I didn't go, and you don't have to go to them to forgive them. People always think that. And you don't have to approve of what was done to you to forgive. Right. And so for me, I was in therapy and I, I don't approve of what was done. And yet I don't want to carry that around with me my whole life. I don't want to live my life in hate and resentment right. and anger right. and all that. Cause that's, that's stopping me from being who I was born to be and how come I was placed here on the planet. So yeah, I, you know, they couldn't help what they did. They had whatever in their past that made them do it. So that's between their and their God, but it's not, me to to judge them so i just said okay let it go yeah now i understand you have a cni dog how many how many have you had and how have they changed your life oh thank you for the therapy (laughs) (laughs) thank you we appreciate the therapy i've had six what was the second part of that oh how they changed my life um so i've had two shepherd Gretel and Lorraine, um, then a Golden Camber, uh, so he lived 15 and a half years. Vinny, Mr. America, he's yeah. still living. He's He lost his passion, though, for guide work, so he's 10 now. Then I had Sarge, um, and he's off being a police dog at the moment because we were attacked in the middle of two busy streets a couple years ago by someone who didn't control their dog. And... And then I just had Maggie two weeks ago and I uh, only had her five days dog, and she was a golden, the dog of my dreams. And, uh, but only five days cause I hurt my knee and now I have to get healed from that before I can go out and get dog seven. Each one of them have changed my life and not just guiding, but I wrote a whole blog recently called follow your dog. And it was all about the, the dog how it's a physical, you know, each one of them was doing, guided me during a different phase of my life. And they've provided a psychological, spiritual guide as well. So Gretel was there during all my music years. Um, Lorraine was there while I was getting my psych degrees. Um, Camber, he was there where I built my habitat house. So he helped me find my heart. One, you know, so Gretel was music. Uh, Lorraine was like my inner self, my psyche. Sure. Uh, Camber was building my house, which is like my heart. He helped me find love. Vinny was, what was Vinny? Vinny was like Mr. America. So he was like being that I'm the champion of my life. Uh, Sarge, he taught me to stand up for myself with advocacy because I'm all about touching and informing people teaching that the important people, all people need to control their dogs. And um, there's only 8,000 of us people out in the United States that use dogs, but keep your dog under control. And Maggie, I'm not sure yet what Maggie's purpose was for five days. And I'm still kind of working on that one, but I know there's a purpose. If it's just that my knees get healed, then okay, Maggie. But man, she was cute. And maybe she showed me that I could have the dog of my dreams and 
I, I wasn't specific with God on that one. I said, oh, I want a little girl gold and 52 pounds. And um, gosh, that'd be so great. And God said, okay, but only five days. It's like, okay, God, next time, 10 years. <laughs> so, so I'm not sure what Maggie's purpose was yet. What, what are some of the biggest myths out there about blind people? Mm-hmm. Incapable, we're stupid. Oh, we don't know what we want. We don't know. Um, yeah, we can't think for ourselves. Uh, we don't have any brains. You know, we, and we certainly can't do anything. We can't walk down a flight of stairs or across the hall by ourselves. We can't, sometimes we can't dress ourselves. Oh, and we can't hear for Pete's sakes. What does she want? <laughs> you know, they're always yelling at us. Um, what else do they do? Uh, yeah, I can't think, can't talk. Yeah, we, we certainly just, we don't have any ability to, to be normal, you know? And they don't, and you know, discrimination is just so subtle. They don't even know they do it and they do it. So. Well, I'm glad that, that you're mentioning this and our audience is hearing this because we're probably opening up some, some eyes and some minds and hopefully changing yeah. the way people look at, at blind people. Yeah. Sometimes uh, yeah. they'll, I they'll never, ask I, me. I never had that, that feeling at all. Okay. As a matter of fact, I always thought the opposite, you know, boy, they, they're pretty smart. I mean, they get around, you know, you know, but that was my thinking, but. I always call that in my book, the devil God syndrome. They're either the devil, like, Oh, poor you, you can't do anything. Uh," You know, and they put us in that box or it's the, the God box. Like, Oh my God, you're great. And I don't even have to do anything. I could just stand here and I'd be (laughs) great. You know, but wouldn't it be nice to be seen as who I am? Right. You know, I'm not perfect and nor am i flawed just you know? just normal just normal just yeah. me yeah what are the three traits uh in your opinion people must have in order to live a successful life well, that's a good one the three traits to live a successful life well hmm Gosh, all kinds of things are coming to my mind. You know, I'm thinking, see your vision, listen to your truth, follow your heart. I'm thinking faith, attitude, action. I'm thinking oh, traits, you you know, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. I think that'd be good. Be, be honest. Mm-hmm. Be, be true to yourself, honest, and communicate. There, those are three more. Those are three. <laughs> There's another three. Well, that leads us into the next question. What is your life's philosophy? Ah, well, this sort of came from the My Miss America, but I, I think it's still my life's philosophy. And is I believe my desire to fly must be bigger than my fear of falling. Vision is internal, not external, and is guided by my heart, not my eyes. In order to be free to fly, you must want your dream, feel your dream, and believe that your dream will come true. Most importantly, you must live your dream. You are the creator of your destiny, the composer of your symphony, and you must choose to live a life of greatness. That's a great philosophy. Gail, how can people who want to get a, a contact you, how, how, how do they go about doing that? Probably the best way is through my website, which is soaringintogreatness.com. And okay. then you can send me an email or 
whatever, right through there. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and, you know, all those other places as well. But all the other, if you, all the other normal, platforms. Yeah. But if you want to reach to me in my little inbox, just shoot me an email through Soaring Into Greatness. Okay. And the title of the book, Soaring Into Greatness. I know. It's a good title. Yeah. It's great. I know. There's a theme there. Well, Gail, I want to thank you for being a guest and enriching people's lives with your music and your words from the heart. I want to wish you continued good fortune. I will include your contact information in the podcast notes. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want everyone to stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap. <laughs>